Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. With more than 40 years and a new second location to its name, Acme is a multiple-time Eisner Award nominee. The shop features a significant contemporary and vintage selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. We reference the television series Smallville a lot around here, and there's one Smallville rewatch podcast that's always at the top of my queue. Always hold on to Smallville, hosted by our pal, Zach Moore. Zach and his guests bring tremendous insight, passion, and humor as they discuss each and every episode of the series that ushered in the renaissance of superhero TV. Listen to Always Hold On to Smallville wherever you get podcasts, and keep an eye out for the other shows under the Always Hold On to banner, including Arrow, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Superman and Lois, and Star Wars. 30 years ago, I stood in front of a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. That moment outside Heroes World set me on a path, a lifelong fan journey leading directly from that tattered red cape to this podcast. Now, together, we mine Superman's vast 85-year mythology by examining, discovering, and reconsidering the stories that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Welcome to Digging for Christmas, a Superman holiday journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the 1998 classic, Superman, Peace on Earth, by Paul Dini and Alex Ross, is one of our longtime patrons, Josh Marowitz. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Anthony. I'm thrilled to be here to talk about this one. Yeah, this is actually our first true holiday special in these few years that we've been doing the podcast. This is the end of our third full year of Digging for Kryptonite, our first holiday special. I'm honored to have you here for this. I thought it would be fun, keep the holiday festivities going, spread a little bit of extra holiday cheer. Just to kind of kick us off here, I don't want to make any assumptions. What holiday or holidays does your family celebrate and any traditions that you care to share with us? Uh, my dad is a Jew and my mom is a Catholic. Like everybody who grew up in my part of New Jersey, we're a, a multi-faith family. Uh, so I grew up celebrating Hanukkah and grew up celebrating Christmas. And actually, nobody loved Christmas more than my dad. My dad was the one out there decorating the trees with lights and putting up the ornaments. He had an ornament he loved, clowny, a big clay clown thing that my mother hated. And, uh, you know, she didn't feel quite as strongly as he did about Christmas. But maybe it's, you know, growing up not having it. It just becomes all that more precious to you. So I'll, I'll do anything that gets me presents to be crass about it. Anything that gets me a gift, I'm there. So we we don't really have any Christmas traditions now. And, and now that my daughters are so young, we're we're just starting to get a conversation of, um, do we have Santa Claus or do mommy and daddy buy the presents? And do we perpetuate that myth for the the magic of Christmas? Or we don't know yet. We're We're just starting to think about our own traditions as a family. That's an important question and one that I guess we haven't answered for ourselves yet either. I feel like last year there were a couple of points where we asked our then three-year-old son, is Santa real or make-believe? And he said make-believe and we were like, okay. okay. This year I feel like well, we, haven't, we haven't pushed it. So I don't know exactly what's in his, 
in his head. But it's it's interesting to hear your experience and sounds like you get the best of both worlds. As yeah. you're talking about celebrating both holidays, I, I happen to be a big OC fan. I'm curious if you are as well in this whole idea of Chrismica. I loved season one of The O.C. It was one of my favorite shows. I don't know what in the world happened to it in season two. And I watched it through season two. And I, I even watched it into season three. And at some point I said, this isn't the show that I was watching season one. The characters aren't the people they were. The 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 satire, at least I thought season one was like some kind of satire of rich people. But satire may not be the word. Parodies, some kind of lampooning of that kind of community. And then into the show, I thought it became like a celebration of that kind of world. And it just wasn't for me. But but early on, I loved it. And I, I loved Krasimka. I was I was thrilled to have that word and, and perplexed that I had never thought of it before. It's funny because OC has been top of mind, I guess, for a little while now. I watched it on DVD a good decade ago when I was in law school. And then over the past year-ish, my wife and I watched the entire thing from start to finish, and it was her first time watching it, and my oh, first man. time in a really long time, and so it was like I was watching it with fresh eyes. And at the same time, I was watching the OC Rewatch podcast led by Melinda Clark and Rachel Bilson from the show, and even more recently, there's a new book out. None of OC is not a sponsor of this podcast in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. I don't know why I'm talking so much about the OC, but there's a new book out called Welcome to the OC, and it's by uh, Alan Sepinwall, who's a renowned uh, television journalist, and the producers of the show participated, as did most of the cast and crew. And they talked all about the show and why it kind of went off the rails in those later seasons and all of that. It's really, really fascinating. But in any event, especially as you're talking about celebrating both holidays, I couldn't help but think of Chrismica. And I do want to say kind of on that note, whatever holiday any of our audience may happen to celebrate, I hope that it's been a great one. And I hope, again, that we can uh, extend uh, that, that holiday feel and season uh, a little bit as people are listening to this. If you're listening in real time the day after Christmas, as far as traditions kind of on my end, I don't know if I could go so far as to call this a tradition because it's only the second year that we've done it. We'll see what the next few years hold. But we have been doing Elf on the Shelf. Oh, okay. Which I've seen parents complain about. I have to tell you, it's become a really fun part of my nightly routine. So I get oh, the question okay. a lot from guests and audience members of, how do you do so much podcasting? And there are various answers, but the most practical one is I'm up really late. I'm up later than I really should be. <laughs> but in any event, I'm the last one up. And so I shut everything down and, and all of that. And so that's kind of become part of my nightly routine is, is finding a new spot for that elf. And it has not been a, a chore for me. I love it because I know in the morning he's going to come down and look for it. And so I try to find fun or funny places for it. So I'm all, I'm all in on elf on the shelf. So that's been one of the routines, but the biggest tradition that I've had for as long as I can remember, and really the sole holiday tradition, I would say is watching. It's a wonderful life every, every year. In black and white. Yes. One year I watched it in color just out of curiosity. I watched the okay, colorized out of curiosity. <laughs> And that was the only year I watched it <laughs> colorized. No, it's it's a black and white movie. It's one of those things. I'm glad I watched it like that because it exists and I've watched it however many times at this point, dozens. So 
the idea that I would experience it a different way at least once, I, I stand by. One year, I actually got to see it on the big screen. Our local Alamo Draft House showed it, and that was really special to actually see it with an audience, which was a totally different experience. <laughs> did the audience like it as much as you did? I think so. I think so. It was it was a fun time, but I've been watching that, and typically my father and I watch it together. That's gotten way late a bit over the past few years between baby and COVID, and now he's recently moved, so there's that hasn't necessarily been the the heart of it, but it's something again, I've watched as far back as I can remember. I, I love it to death. It's one of my all time favorite movies. And to pull back the curtain, you and I are recording this before Christmas. Uh, so I haven't actually performed my annual viewing of it yet, but I will. And this will be the first year in 4k. I bought the 4k disc of it. I've owned it in every format that they've put it out on. And I feel like <laughs> I will always continue whatever they put it out on. I'll get because if there's one movie, even beyond all of the superhero Superman pieces of, of media, that's the one that I feel I would always have uh, no matter what they put it out on. Well, I guess I hadn't thought of uh, watching home alone as my tradition. So here I'm telling you, I have no tradition, but then I realized, Oh yeah, I have a movie I have to watch every year. Nice. And, as a kid, of course, I liked the, the you know, quote unquote funny parts of the, the guys getting hit with the paint cans and falling on the micro machines. But now as an adult, everything around that is so much better. I feel the same way about Willy Wonka when, uh, you know, as a kid, I just want them to get into that chocolate factory. I just want to see the chocolate factory. And now as an adult, everything that leads up to the chocolate factory is so much funnier. And so much darker than I ever understood as a child. And Home Alone is so much more, I don't know, uh, is, sentimental is not quite the word I want. Um, I don't know the word I want. <laughs> I'm an English teacher. I'm allowed to not know the word I want. It's fine. Sometimes not knowing the word you want speaks volumes, right? I, I okay, got gotcha. you. I'll take that. Good spin. I got you covered. <laughs> it's, well, it's funny. I mean, that's... That kind of points to an idea I've had percolating for a while, whether it's a podcast idea or just a personal project, I don't know. But I think about all the movies that I watched as a kid, whether I like them or not, but to view them through adult eyes would be a completely different lens. And so that's something that I've been kicking around for a while. And especially, I feel like that's something that might kick into high gear as my son gets older. And maybe that's something that we do together. I, yeah. I don't know, but I've definitely been thinking about that. Cause you think about all the stuff you watch as a kid and you, you have one take on it and you're taking it in and in a certain way to watch it with adult eyes, totally different. Well, I just watched uh, Moana this afternoon with my older daughter and you know, she's two and a half. So she's not really paying attention to anything, but I've got the little baby on my chest and I've got the, the older baby uh, next to me. And watching little Moana on the screen kind of toddle around and then she grows up, I was bawling. I, I was bawling. I thought, I'm probably not going to cry today until I talk about uh, Superman Peace on Earth. Uh, and then I cried earlier. So I've, I've got my good cry in already. Uh, seeing that through, through the eyes of a father of two girls, I, I, I was not mentally uh, braced for uh, enough adequately. I hear you, and especially as a, as a father of, of a girl. It's, but it's like, I, if, if anyone ever made a drinking game out of any time I talk about being in tears over something that we're discussing yeah. for the podcast, <laughs> you'd be on the floor because it's, it's something that, especially after becoming a dad, has happened a lot more. So yeah. well, we've talked a bit about holiday traditions and experiences generally. In the realm of 
superheroes and Superman in particular. I've gotten the sense from our correspondence leading up to this that Superman Peace on Earth looms large for you, and obviously that's the main thrust of our conversation. But aside from that, when you think about Superman and the holidays, any other stories that that immediately come to mind for you? No holiday story comes to mind. In fact, I don't really think of this one as a holiday story, except for the moment on Facebook each year when I make my cover photo, the the shot of Superman bringing the tree down. That's the only association I, I really have with Superman and Christmas. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. I'm sure there's a story that as soon as we end the call, I'll say, why didn't I talk about that? But no, off the top of my head. I can't think of one. Interesting. All right. So I I have about a handful. I'll go quick though. So I would say going back to the triangle era, that annual tradition of Superman going to the post office and reading the letters that have been sent him, the Metropolis mailbag issues, those loom fairly large for me. I would say though, the ones that I would really kind of put at the top of my list, Superman 165 written by Jeff Loeb. It's an artist jam issue. So it's right after Luther has been elected president of the United States, and it's a series of vignettes as he's encountering different members of the Justice League. And I remember that issue. It's a lot of That's fun. That's a good one. It's a really good one, and it ends with uh, Lois and Clark taking a little vacation in the Bottle City of Candor. And that, and it's a great, co- it's a great uh, Ed McGinnis cover with Lois and Clark and all the ornaments in front of them. Really, really cool. So that's that's pretty high up there for me. There's also an issue from, it's actually Joe Kelly's last issue on Action Comics. It's number 810. And it's- so the one with the sled on the cover? It's, no, the it's, it's, it's Superman in the skyline of Metropolis and it says leaping into the new year and it's a new year's issue. Uh, okay. And it's Walking okay, yeah. Midnight. It's the Walking Midnight issue, which going back to that nightly routine of shutting down the house and hiding the elf and all of that, I think about it basically nightly. Uh, this whole idea, the issue draws this parallel between Pa and Clark, where Pa Ken had this routine of walking midnight, where he would get up at that time every night and walk through the house and make sure everything was in order. And he would check in on Clark and make sure he was having good dreams and all of that. And cl- that's what Clark does now, but his house is the whole world. That mm. kind of idea of walking midnight. Uh, so that's that's always been a favorite of mine. On the other media side, the Lexmas episode of Smallville from season five. I don't remember that one. Is a standout. Season five is when I quit. Is that after Jonathan's death or before? Oh, it breaks my heart. It's right before. Okay. It's very and Jonathan short-lived. died and and I I I kind of left. I, I kept watching, but my heart wasn't in it. I understand. I, I do. don't remember Lexmas. Lexmas. So Lex has this vision of a life where he's turned his back on Lionel and business and fortune and has settled into this really quiet, enjoyable, happy home life with Lana and they're expecting a child and then she experiences complications and he doesn't have the resources to bring in the doctors to help her and he goes to Lionel who turns him away and Lana and the baby uh, don't make it if my memory serves correctly. And then when Lex wakes up from this, his takeaway is, and I, I still, I will always remember that final line of the episode where he's like, I want it all, right? He wants Lana. He wants that love, 
but he also wants the money, the resources, the power, the influence. And I felt like it was a pivotal episode. And it was also cool because at this point in the show, he and Clark were not buddies anymore. But in this vision that he has, in this dream, they are once again. Uh, and so it was nice to kind of see that. So that's up there. And then the last thing, and then we'll get into Peace on Earth, is one that hasn't been on my list at all until very recently because I was just in the holiday spirit. And, I sa- and I've been on a little bit of a Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman kick. And so I watched the season four episode, Twas the Night Before Miximus. Are you familiar with this? It's with Howie Mandel no. as Mr. Mixius Pitlick. Are you not a Lois and Clark guy at all? Uh, that's another, I've, I've tried to dip in. In fact, the the oral history book, the uh, what, uh, Voices from Krypton, that made me want to re-examine Lois and Clark and re-examine Superboy. And it's just now a matter of finding time to to do that. I, I totally hear you. I, I, you know, for, for, for people who have been listening, I've, I've really had this moment with Lois and Clark where I've going back to this idea of seeing it through adult eyes and appreciating it in a different way. I, I've really been on a bit of a Lois and Clark kick. And so I watched that season four Christmas episode. It's so good. Mixes Pitalik real quick. Mixes Pitalik arrives and he, it's sort of a Christmas slash groundhog day uh, installment where he creates this time loop where everyone is experiencing the same day over and over. Clark is the only one who realizes this. And Mixie's whole agenda is if you take away tomorrow, you take away hope. And without hope, Superman has no power. And so every time the epi- the day restarts, it's worse. It's a worse version of, of the same day. And people uh, succumb to more and more despair as the day moves forward. And what's so cool about it is at its heart, it's about Superman having to instill hope in the people around him. That's what the episode is ultimately about. And it's going back to this idea of tearing up, <laughs> tearing up watching this. It was really heartfelt. I, I, I got so much out of it and I'm watching it. I'm like this again, I watched it as a kid. I hadn't watched it in so long, but I was like, man, they did a better job with Mixius Pitalik than, <laughs> than Smallville did back in season four. Anyway, though, that's one that I think now would be in my rotation. So it was the night before Miximus, not the only Christmas episode that Lois and Clark did, but uh, in my opinion, I think the strongest and one that was really, it was a really, it was a really fun and heartfelt watch. Well, I'm going to go check that out then. It's about time for me to give Lois and Clark a better shake than I've given it. It's worth it. I think for, for what it does, it, it does well. In any event, we are here officially to discuss Superman, Peace on Earth, this 1998 tabloid-sized one-shot by Paul Dini and Alex Ross, that was the first in a series of tabloid-sized one-shots, each focusing on a different icon of the DC universe, and each one kind of having those icons tackle a real-world problem. In this issue, Superman decides to try to combat world hunger. So I want to give you the floor, because we'll unpack it as we always do on the show, but I know from the messages we've exchanged that this story means a lot to you personally, and... I just kind of want to have you share for the audience what it is about this that has resonated so much with you. Well, I started reading Superman in 97 when he got his electric blue powers and his electric blue suit. Superman 123 was my first issue. So I read from what March of 97 through the following fall when Either he was in his electric suit or then he had that several month thing where he was going through the realities of Dominus. Do you say Dominus, Dominus? What do you say? I've always <laughs> said Dominus. I, well, I say Dominus too, but now I, I hear myself and I wonder, oh, wait, do I know how to pronounce that? Um, 
So I get to the the fall of 98 and I'm now just seeing Superman for the first real time as a comic book reader because I've seen him as electric and I've seen him as, you know, splintered reality versions. And in that that fall, Superman for all seasons comes out. And then I think that same month, uh, DC 1 million starts and that DC 1 million number four that just blows my mind apart with how Superman is so super. Uh, and then November of uh, of 98, Peace on Earth comes out. So I'm hit real hard, real fast with three incredible Superman stories that after a year and a half of reading, I'm I'm seeing Superman for really the first time. The, re- the real Superman, the classic Superman, the idealized, mythologized Superman. And so I I liked Superman. I I was buying the books the whole time, but I didn't realize that I loved Superman. And I I don't want to be as as crass or whatever as is to say that like Superman's my religion or anything. I would I wouldn't put it that far. I'm, I'm not a cultist or a, a, a weirdo, but I, I definitely think what would Superman do? In a lot of situations. And one of the things that I think about constantly, um, especially when when people like uh you know Kanye or others exist, uh, is the page in Superman Peace on Earth. And I've got my original pre-absolute editions, absolute edition. In fact, when they just released this as an absolute edition a few years ago, they called it absolute edition world's greatest superheroes. And I said, oh, I'll buy the new edition of that. And it was the same one that I already have. So I, I sold it off on eBay. Um, and there's the, the shot as, as Superman, or I guess as Clark, is sitting there in the Daily Planet offices looking at the pictures of all the hungry people. And he comes to remember his father. And he said that his father said it would take a special individual. I'm I'm quoting now, reading from the book. It would take a special individual with no personal agenda to make everyone realize what the world has to offer. Someone who could put his own needs aside to help the greater good. And that's the end of the page. And then you turn the page and it's, you know, full color Superman saving children from a fire. Superman preventing a bridge from collapsing, Superman rescuing flood victims. And he doesn't say, as I expected him to do when I was 15 years old reading this thing for the first time, he doesn't say, and I've honored my father. I've done what he said, or I've tried to be the best version of that. He says, again, quoting, I don't pretend to think that I am that person, though I have always tried to be there for others. And even at 15 years old, I had sense enough to know how magical that was that he it's not that he thinks that he's a well how do i say this he's not even uh allowing himself to believe that he's aspiring to it he's so humble he's so modest that he he's not even on the path of being the person that his father was talking about and of course what comics can do so beautifully better than than regular prose is then contrast that with what we're seeing. We're seeing him be that person that Jonathan is talking about, but inside he doesn't believe it. And that is magical. 
And so when I see a guy like Kanye, and I don't know why I'm picking on Kanye, that's not the most relevant example, but, you know, a guy like Kanye who walks around just bragging about how great he is and he's the greatest of all time and, and uh, you know, I'm wonderful, I'm tremendous and all the other, you know, politicians, I, I'm sure we can all think of politicians who uh, do that. Let's not name any names. Uh, it, it just rubs me the wrong way. Because I think, well, Superman doesn't believe he's the greatest, and he is. So what does it say about you that you need to constantly tell us that you're the greatest? Now, that's that's kind of played with me psychologically, though, because then anytime I think, oh, I'm really good at blank, uh, I think, well, I shouldn't think I'd be allowed to think that I'm good at blank, because Superman wouldn't believe that. And I, I, and I know, of course, he does believe he's good at something. He, he doesn't walk around hating himself, but I don't know. I, all these years later, I'm still wrapping my head around how to interpret that and, and live my life through that ideal that I'm not, I'm not as good as as I would like to be, uh, but I'm not also that doesn't make me bad. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm still really wrestling with it. I, all I know is that line makes me weep when I really get into my head about it. And over the years, when I was still a teacher and you know, my room was completely wall-to-wall -wall Superman, uh, and kids would say, why do you like Superman? I, I would show them that page. And, you know, one or two in the 15 or 16 years I was a teacher seemed to, like, process it, and others, you know, they didn't. Uh, but, but, but that line defines Superman for me in a way that no other single line really defines him. I hear you, and it's great to hear you lay all of that out and you mentioned Kanye as an example, I guess another kind of current real world example that comes to my mind and that was top of mind as I was reading this was Elon Musk, because very recently John Oliver did a whole episode about Elon Musk and there's a clip that he plays there. Did you watch it as well? I, I didn't because I, I get behind on that show and then I have to watch like a season's worth of it and I love it. I don't know why I don't keep up with it, but I I, I let it pile up. It's funny because we have Max. That's how I'm watching any of the DC stuff that we're talking about on the show. Yet I always find myself watching last week tonight on my on my phone on YouTube. But it's like I open up YouTube and it's there. And I say, OK. Yeah. And then I sit there for a half hour. Anyway, but he did a whole Musk piece. Musk is a great example. Yeah, he did a, he had a whole piece on Elon Musk. And one of the, the clips that he played, if I'm not mistaken, was from Musk's biographer. And he said something along the lines of Elon Musk wants to save the world, but only if he's the one to save it. Mm. And I kind of had that swirling in my head as I was rereading this, but <laughs> that line is so resonant because I think it's, it captures kind of the one, two punch of who Superman is. It is a combination of selflessness and humility and exactly yes. what's captured in that line there. If I don't pretend to be that person and you're right, it smacks you in the face because had you turned the page and Clark had said, like you said, I try to be that. I don't think right. we would have batted an eye at it. It would have right. felt natural. But to have him say, I don't pretend to be that person, it just washes over you. And it really does convey everything that this character is. We've talked about this before, this whole idea that Superman does what he does in part or in full because he believes that's what other people would do if they were able to, right? And the the specific example that I always come back to is a story set during For All Seasons, going back to that story that you were just mentioning. It's actually from Tim Sale's issue of Solo that he did. He and Jeff Loeb collaborated on this prom night story. 
And thankfully, it's collected in the current uh, Superman yes. for All Seasons Collected Edition. It fits in perfectly. And Martha is narrating that issue. And she articulates that exact idea. Because in the story, Clark stops on his promenade. He helps this woman whose car is stuck in the mud in this storm. And she's totally ungrateful and speeds off and splatters him with mud. But as we're seeing this, Martha's talking about how Clark Clark stopped to help her because he he assumes that's what anyone else would do. And in a very recent issue of Philip Kennedy Johnson's Action Comics, this idea came up again where he helps Metallo try to rescue his sister, despite everything Metallo has done in the past and in that very story. And Superman says to him, like, anyone would do that, right? And even later in that story, one of the other characters calls him out on that. And they're like, you know, not everybody (laughs) would do that. But that idea is, I think, just so central to who the character is. And I agree with you totally. That juxtaposition of him saying, I'm not that person versus all of the imagery of him being that person, saving people from fires and floods and train derailments and airplane crashes. Mm-hmm. It's so, it, it's just stunning and evocative. And it like, it just captures the heart of this character. Definitely. I, 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 you got me distracted now thinking about that Metallo issue. What is it that he says, like, but you need me now? Or what is the line? Is he like helping up Metallo? And he's like, you, Metallo said, like, you shouldn't help me. Or, oh gosh, it's going to, it's going to drive me crazy if, until I can think of it. Yeah. I don't I have the quote top of mind, but it's something now. along the lines of, again, any, anyone would do that or, or, yeah. or you would do it too, or something along those lines. It's, it's, that's kind yeah, of the it's, it's, spirit of but it. But there, there's another moment. Too. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll drive myself crazy. No, it's, it's, it's quite all right. Anyway. But I have to say, it's interesting too, hearing you talk about that initial experience and man, what a trifecta that you hit so early on in your Superman fan journey of four all seasons, <laughs> 1 million and peace on earth. I'll be honest. Peace on earth is one of those stories. Maybe Alex Ross is a theme here because kingdom come also falls into this category where in both instances, kingdom come and peace on earth. I read them either exactly when they came out or very shortly thereafter enjoyed them have always heard wonderful things about them over the years, but for whatever reason, they have not been, they have not become those tent poles of my fandom that I'm always talking about and that I'm always going back to. And I couldn't tell you why. It's not, there are things that we talk about on the show and I can kind of say, well, this is why it didn't resonate with me or this is why I never went back to it. I don't know. I don't know. It's one of those ones that I feel like I kind of always overlooked. I didn't fully appreciate what it was saying about the character. I don't know. I mean, we came to it, probably a couple of years ago on the show when we looked at the morality and ethical duty of Superman. And we talked about the man of steel movie and the killing of Zod. And we talked about Superman Four: quest for peace. And we talked about this story. And that was the first time in a really long time that I went back and I reread peace on earth. And even from that episode, I kind of knew we'll do something on this more in the future because there's, there's more to unpack here. So that's why, again, I'm happy to, to be doing this now. I agree with you too. It's not, I guess this kind of harkens back to the whole uh, Die Hard debate, if that's a Christmas movie or not, because this is set during the Christmas season. And yes, it begins with Superman flying in and bringing this Christmas tree to the center of the city. Uh, And then very quickly, he meets this young woman who is starving and he brings her to the shelter and it kickstarts the path that he sets out on for the rest of the issue. But it's not otherwise a Christmas tale, so to speak. But 
uh, close right. enough that it felt worthy uh, or, or close or, enough. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, close enough that it made sense for this episode. I guess <laughs> nobody my whole life has ever asked me anywhere to come talk about Superman. It's usually they'll allow me to talk about it because I live in their house with them, or I'm their teacher controlling their grades. But no one has said, "Hey, come make this special appointment to uh, tell us about Superman." So, whatever excuse. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be a Christmas tale to come talk near Christmas about it. I'm just thrilled to uh, to be invited. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of comics from every publisher and time period, along with action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose and Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On To Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and Round Reel in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Take it from an alum of two of them. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. No, it's awesome. I'm curious, like I said, for myself, it's not something that I've spent a lot of time with over the years. I read it when it first came out. I'm so, I'm so, oh my God, it breaks my heart to say, and you're really going to be disappointed. And I apologize in advance. I don't currently own a physical copy of it. Oh, that's okay. I can forgive you. Superman would. That's true. <laughs> I own that tabloid. And when we say tabloid size, it's this oversized treasury size. If you were, if you were bagging treasury it, sized. you would need a treasury sized bag. <laughs> and yes. I, I owned it at the time. I think one of the reasons I parted with it, A, not fully appreciating it the way I should have, and B, and this is kind of a silly reason, but how do you store it? Where do you put it? It doesn't fit in the box with the rest of the books. So I think that was one it, of the reasons I invested myself. It doesn't fit in myself. the Ikea Cadillac shelves. have to pile it on top. But it it gets worse because at a certain point, I came to own not the oversized hardcover that you have, but the standard-sized World's Greatest Superheroes trade paperback that collects this and the other Dini Ross one-shots. And I think during one of my prunings of my collection, I didn't think that I would go back to it again. The number of times where I I'm like I want to go back in time and say, what are you doing? One day you're going to do this podcast. You're going to do hundreds of episodes and you're going to want to talk about all this stuff. Hang on to it. Uh, it drives me crazy. But anyway, so I don't currently own a physical copy. I read it on my iPad and it looked great and all of that. I might I might go on eBay and try to track down a, a physical copy. But how many is this something that you read every year, every other? Like how often do you go back to this story? Well, I don't know. I mean, here it is. Here I am telling you it's one of my favorite things and it's defined the character for me. I don't know the last time I read it all the way through. I know that I read that page a lot. And whenever I get into a, a uh, touchy-feely uh, mood about Superman, like that's the thing I go to. Whenever it, I have a, a chance to bring it up in conversation about Superman, that's the page I go to. So really, that those Two pages, maybe three pages. Uh, they uh, those I think about a lot. Those I read a lot, and the rest. It's been a while, and that that's why I was kind of surprised by the by the rest of it. 
so kind of on that note, yeah, how did it, I'm very curious, and you gave me a little bit of a hint off mic, but we didn't fully get into it. It was one of those classic save it for the show moments. Yeah. So so what was the reaction going back to it, all this, and to read it in full uh, after all this time? To read it in full, I, I just had a hard time picturing Tim Daly reading it. And now that might be a me problem because when I came in to being the full-fledged Superman fan I was, and actually, if we're to tell the long story, I was a Superman fan my whole life, but just kind of, you know, in the background. I remember watching him on Nick at Night. I remember watching the Ruby Spears cartoon when it was on. I remember, I knew that Superboy was a show on TV, but I didn't watch it. Like I was that kind of Superman fan, but you know, when I be finally became a full-fledged Superman fan, Superman the Animated Series was how I heard what Superman sounded like and how what I heard everybody sound like was then the voice that lived in my head when I read them in the comics. Uh, so I could not picture Tim Daly saying it. But knowing how Alex Ross thinks about all these characters, maybe it's not the, the post-crisis animated series Superman. It's it's probably the the Silver Age Superman that he loves drawing so much. I mean, even the way he draws him, he looks old. He he looks the way that the the you know the '60s Superman did with kind of the receding hairline almost, not the full uh, luscious locks of the uh, John Byrne uh, post crisis Superman. So I I tried going back into the story, reading Superman like that. That he's not Tim Daly, he's, you know, 1960 Superman. And, and then it sounded a little better. I was talking to my friend uh, Brooks about this, and uh, he said that it actually, the story feels like it could be like a Christopher Reeve movie. You know, in the same way that Superman 4 tr had Superman trying to deal with nuclear proliferation and getting rid of the nuclear weapons, Maybe Superman 5 with Christopher Reeve, he could have tried to solve world hunger. And it's a very, you know, no supervillain kind of story. And so then I went in and tried to treat it as Christopher Reeve. And actually, that worked okay for me. The problem there, though, is that Alex Ross's Superman looks nothing like Christopher Reeve. He never really smiles. And to me, if Superman's not smiling, that I, I have a big problem with it. Like, I, I get that Superman, you know, in a fight, he's not going to be smiling, but there's got to be a moment that he smiles at another character. And, and smiles are few and far between uh, whenever Alex Ross draws his very old looking Superman. Oh. So I, I, I don't I, I don't know just how much of it is. I'm so attached to Tim Daly's voice living in my head as the de facto Superman voice. But then I tried reading the the next story in that collection, the Batman story, and I can hear Kevin Conroy saying that, those words. That's a, a totally different voice that that Deany was writing there. And of course, Deany was better at Batman than Superman. Deany's probably better at Batman than most people are. Um, I, I read the Captain Marvel story, and that sounds pretty much like a young boy. But I mean, especially his Christmas narration does not sound like the kid who grew up on the farm in Smallville. It sounds like a guy trying to write a Charles Dickens novel. And that, that even that would be okay if there was some kind of framing device in the story that, that this is all Clark Kent writing a newspaper column. And he's, he's 
you know, punching up his prose because he's he's a newspaper columnist. That's great. That would work. Or if Superman's sitting in the Fortress of Solitude recording his journal and he wants to, you know, write a little more fancy than he would normally speak. But if this is just all internal monologue, just for the sake of our, us as readers, the, the the language hits my ear just not not great. It really kind of takes me out of most of the rest of the story. And it, 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 the line I love, I don't pretend to think I am that person like that. I can hear that. That's a nice succinct line, but boy, he, he's a much more talkative guy than I can hear Tim Daly as Superman being. Interesting. See, now I feel like I've ruined this for you. You had this great memory of it. I'm like, reread it. Come <laughs> on. We'll talk about it. <laughs> Let's shatter this image. That's really fascinating actually. So as I was reading it, I, it didn't feel like the voice was off to me, but I don't know. The next time I read it, I'll, <laughs> I'll kind of have that in mind. I'll see. You got to go back in. Yeah. If I feel any differently. I mean, a couple of things. So like I said, I read it on the app and specifically, I don't know if this is only in the ultra tier or if you can read it on any tier of the app. I'm not positive, but uh, they have the world's greatest superhero trade paperback, which includes uh, an afterword by Paul Dini and then more back matter that goes into Alex Ross's uh, artistic process and whatnot. And there are comments from him as well. And one of the things that Paul Dini talked about, I think I would say this was the heart of his piece was that it took him a minute to sort of get used to this idea of, of, of finding and capturing that voice. Because when you're writing for, for animation in his experience in particular, while the characters are in action, they're not necessarily talking all that much and we're not hearing their thoughts, right? The action is happening quickly. Whereas on a static comic book page, you can have the the narration via the the captions or you can have the word bubble or word bubbles or word balloons. So that was something that he talked about. And maybe it's a matter of this was the first of this series that he and Ross did. And maybe he didn't quite nail that aspect of it if if you feel that way. So it could be that. The other thing too is in terms of like what version of Superman is this? <laughs> That's something that I was thinking about too. I mean, in my mind, I know Ross talked about this in that trade paperback of how he really wanted to harken back to that original, more golden age iteration of the character and really strip away everything else that had been added. And you you read this and it is a very kind of boiled down, distilled version of the character. Clark works at the Daily Planet at one point, he references pitching the story on homelessness to his editor, who's never given a name <laughs> or seen. There's no Lois. There's no Jimmy. Uh, and even his parents, we see we see Jonathan and Martha in the flashbacks. My reading of it, actually, actually, this was one of the things I wanted to ask you, was it seems we're not told explicitly, but reading it, the way he talks about his parents, it seems that they are in the past, that they have passed away. Is that your take on it as well? That's my take. That's how it reads. So it's one of those things, I think there's enough, and I, I'm sure this was at least somewhat by design, whether the creators wanted this or was sort of mandated by DC, because the, the, it's it's ambiguous enough where you could read it and maybe, you know, maybe Lois is, they, they're together, but we just don't see them together. Maybe the Kens are still right. there, it, It's which I think works nicely for this, where it can kind of fit in anywhere uh, in, in a way. But yeah, reading it, you definitely sense the Kens are in the past. But so, you know, this is really a more... And I think the intention is for this to be a more solitary Superman. And 
The only thing that kind of goes against that whole <laughs> Golden Age Superman argument, because I'm thinking about some of those early Golden Age stories where he's demolishing that uh, that tenement building, for example. Smashing well, up the cars because of traffic. When we get to the point in the story, and we'll, we'll talk more about it when he's faced with that that despot in that one country that threatens to, and actually orders his soldiers to fire on the people uh, who Superman has brought the food to. I don't know. I feel like the Golden Age Superman probably would have taken that guy and like, tossed him in the air, <laughs> or as the Superman doesn't. So it's not not wholly a Golden Age-esque Superman, but I feel like for me at least, and that's especially reading Ross's comments, like that's kind of what I had mostly in my head, that kind of iteration of the character. Whether the whether the language that's used and the voice that we are presented with, whether that totally lines up, I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of maybe an open question for me that I'll try to answer the next time I read this. I can see it being like a later golden age, like almost getting into George Reeves. Like he, he's wearing that fedora. <laughs> that's that's really a lot. All I've got to uh, think about golden. I mean, it is it's a golden age uh, kind of story in that he's trying to solve an actual problem, and and that's, uh, well, I guess you know the way he goes about the the problem solving in the golden age is very childlike and innocent and in like how direct it is and how ineffective it would be in reality. And here in this story, he turns out to be ineffective because it's a overly simple, simple solution, oversimplistic solution. True. So I can see that, that argument that he's trying to write a golden age Superman. I love the golden age Superman, by the way, I'm not knocking golden age Superman. That, that's one of my favorite takes, but you know, it seems a, uh, mishmash I, I think you're right that it was supposed to be a solitary superman we're supposed to allow ourselves to believe whatever we want to believe about the continuity i mean even the origin in the beginning that that two-page splash that's very ambiguous that doesn't really tell us which version it is okay we've got the silver age looking rocket but doesn't say like his parents died and then he became Superman. It doesn't say at what point he was named Superman or where his uh, his suit comes from. None of the details that we might use to nail it down. It's a very stripped down version of the origin. And, and I loved it. But there again, the writing kind of hit my ear wrong. I mean, he says. He says. On the uh, the third. Where is it? I'm looking right at, oh, right at the bottom when he says, like, I, I am there as Superman to fight for liberty and justice. I have sworn to protect. I mean, my God, you're doing the stripped down Superman and you say liberty and justice. We want you after this beautiful two page origin, this beautiful paintings to say truth and justice. We want that. and <laughs> We should have it. But he gives us liberty and justice. And I mean, I could every panel of that goes. Why aren't you giving us what we want? He says, I. I could defy gravity. Can you not tell us you could leap taller than a, a, a tall buildings in a single bound? He says he could. Uh, my strength was tremendous. My body was invulnerable. I could run faster than anything created by man. I'm, give us the lines. <laughs> it, it sounds snappier. It sounds more like what he would say as a kid who grew up on a, a Kansas farm. That, that sounds like what some. I don't know. Some some uh, fancy English teacher would try to write. It, you know, you're not wrong as you're saying that. I mean, I wonder 
you're right. I mean, I think some of the choices there are are rather curious, and I don't know if that's an attempt by Paul Dini in particular to to sort of counter the expectation that everyone has of what the phrasing is going to be or a mandate from DC's part to put a different spin on it. I don't know. That's fair. What I will say though, what I what I liked about this was, you know, I we I talk a lot about that opening page of All-Star Superman that gives mm-hmm. us this beautiful distillation of the origin, doomed planet, desperate scientist, last hope, kindly couple. And you turn the page, Superman. It's gorgeous. And again, going back to this idea of it being sort of overlooked uh, on my part, peace on earth, I was reminded here too that we have this really gorgeously rendered retelling of the origin story. And I feel like that's, I think that's kind of uh, the mark of a great character and a great origin story in particular, where you can tell it in a page or two pages, or you can tell it over 12 issues, but either way it works. And there's something really beautiful about that. So as much as All-Star Superman, that opening page is always, always, always in my mind and my heart. I think this, this will be there as well. I love that opening. And again, one of those things that I had sort of forgotten about over time. So I was happy to look at that. And I know each of the specials does that. And then I know there was an additional special that did origins for the rest of the Justice League characters who were then featured in the and it's called Liberty and Justice, right? The Justice League one? The, the big one is. And then the, the the one you're talking about right now is called Secret Origins. Gotcha. Uh, so I, I really like that aspect of it. And and just, I, I suppose, one other big picture idea with all of this, just this notion of any of these characters, but especially Superman, taking on a real world problem. It's fascinating because you don't, I was really thinking about this. You don't see a lot of it. You see some of it, right? There are definitely examples that we can point to. Quest for Peace is is a very prominent one. You go back to a lot of those early Golden Age stories. They're there. Even during the, even during the Triangle Era comics, because we've come upon a number of these recently. There's, just off the top of my head, there's a two-parter in the Louise Simonson, John Bogdanov, Man of Steel series where uh, Clark lives next door to... Uh, to a family where domestic violence is an issue where there's an abusive husband or boyfriend. So there, we do see instances where this comes up, but especially along the lines of such a worldwide widespread problem like nuclear weapons or like world hunger, you don't see that a ton. And I feel like it's, it's twofold, right? On the one hand, from the publishing perspective, you, I guess this kind of cuts both ways because you want a level of, fantasy and spectacle in terms of the threats you're putting the character against, right? Because I think that's somewhat of an expectation that the audience has going into it. But then, like I said, it cuts both ways because I feel like on the other side of that, you want the world in which these fantastical threats are presented to feel as real as possible. Generally speaking, of course, there are always exceptions. And if you have, if the DC universe is a world in which hunger has been conquered or there are no nuclear weapons, that kind of shatters that. So I think from a publishing perspective, you always have that aim, but that's not necessarily an answer narratively for why these characters don't take on these problems. And we talked a while back, uh, I think at the beginning of 2023, about the Tom Taylor, Son of Kal-El series, focusing on John Kent, which I loved. It was really enjoyable. There's an exchange between the two of them really early on. I think it's in the first or second issue where John asks his father, why point blank, why don't you do more? Why don't you involve yourselves in these sort of, of issues? Uh, 
And I talked about this. I didn't really love Clark's answer in that moment where Clark's response was, I wasn't born here. It's not my place, essentially. And the thing is, I get it. For purposes of that series and that story, you want to set up that contrast between the two of them where John is born here. And that whole series was about John being more active and he's this protester and he's getting involved and he's inserting himself into geopolitical affairs and all of that. So I get why you kind of wanted to draw that line between them. But the whole time, as I'm reading that scene between them, I'm saying to myself, Clark, you have a much better answer that you can give your son. (laughs) Son, there was this one time I tried to fight world hunger and it blew up in my (laughs) face, right? People doubted me. They questioned me. They turned me away. They poisoned the grain that I was bringing to them. This is why I don't. And I know that that's not what that story was built around. I totally get that. But that's what I had in my head as I was reading it because I feel like, and I really do feel this is a great story for anyone who's ever like, why doesn't Superman do this or that? Hand them this because I I think it's kind of a, a really good encapsulation of why not. Do you agree? That That all makes sense. And I love that Tom Taylor series. I, I was sorry that he's not still writing that character in some ongoing. I know, same. I did enjoy the Adventures of of Superman, John Kent miniseries, but that again dealt with all of the and that was okay injustice business and whatnot. I I know. I yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm with you, but but again, just the at the outset, just the idea that this is going to be tackled, uh, I think, is really fascinating. So yeah, let's talk about what what Superman decides to do, why he decides to do it and, and how he goes <laughs> about it. Cause I think there are, you know, a few different pieces of it. So like we mentioned before, he brings the, the tree to the city. And even in that, in that little uh, opening moment there, he expresses essentially giddiness over this idea of Christmas. And as much as the people look forward to him bringing the tree, he looks forward to it even more. I know one of the things you and I watched uh, additionally was the comfort and joy episode of the Justice League animated series written by Paul Dini. And that follows a trio of stories uh, set during the holidays. And on the Superman side, we have Clark bringing Jean Jones home to the Kent farm. And it's kind of a foreign concept for for Martian Manhunter, but the Kents welcome him in. And I think that what was most endearing to me about that storyline and that whole episode was just, again, how much joy Clark expresses towards the holidays. He's trying to peek through his gift-wrapped presents, but of course, Jonathan and Martha are wise enough to use lead. Uh, he, when when Paz, like, he calls up, he's like, I'm going to light the tree. Clark's like, no, wait for me. So just that kind of idea of this, this giddiness, I find that very endearing. That is very endearing. And and that's the kind of Superman that I love. And and I wonder if uh, after he looked back at the way he wrote Superman here, did he say, oh, I've, I've got to make this guy warmer because here he he's he just sounds so cold as he's, he's writing in such elevated language for a guy that, as I keep pointing out, just growing up on a Kansas farm. Not to say that people who grow up on Kansas farms aren't intelligent people, but you know, they're they're the myth versions of them should be more plain spoken than he is in in this story, and and that one was so charming that that part of comfort and joy that you know Santa brought him those gifts Anthony not that uh, Jonathan Martha wrapped them and led Santa did yes I know very charming well I don't know I that you bring up a really good point I I think I have to ponder this more because especially the, like this whole idea of for lack of a better term but Clark's worldliness. 
right? In modern eras, we've had this, or modern tellings of the origin story, we've had this sort of globe-trotting adventure that he goes on before he eventually dons the costume, but that hasn't necessarily always been part of the character's history. And even, you know, I've been covering Adventures of Superman over on my, my other podcast, and you look at the pilot episode of that, which recounts the origin, and there it seems to be a pretty direct line from the farm to Metropolis. <laughs> you don't necessarily get the sense that he's having this, this globetrotting adventure and, and becoming more worldly or more sophisticated or whatever you want to call it. So I think there might be something to that, I, especially when you talk about this idea of elevated language. I, I think ultimately the intention is on Peace on Earth for it to be this solitary superhero who's not romantically involved with Lois Lane who is not socially involved even with his coworkers. There, he makes a point about really keeping a low profile at the office. He doesn't go to the Christmas party. He's in the, in the stacks in the research area looking up information about homelessness. And again, I think it's pretty clear from the way it's written that the Kents aren't alive in this anymore. So I think that solitary aspect of the character accounts for a fair bit of the voice, but I, I, I also see what you're saying. Even beyond that, maybe there are some questions that aren't aren't totally answered there as far well, as how I, he comes I across. I like that spin. Uh, that that spin brings me some kind of comfort that you know, if we're looking at this particular Superman, the way that Alex Ross sees him, probably primarily, and the way that Paul Dini wrote him for that version, okay. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, if he was painted like Chris Reeve, and was saying this, I I could believe Chris Reeve would would say some of what he says here, but I I don't want to keep harping on that point. No, no, I I because I'd harp on that all night. <laughs> I'd harp on that for three hours. I've been harping on it for you know how long ago did you ask me to do this? Like a week, two weeks ago. I've I've been thinking about that for however long you asked me to do it. And I sat down and read it again. I thought, oh God, who is this? <laughs> but, but as far as uh, what what sort of jump starts this whole quest that he goes on here, while he's delivering the tree, everyone's calling out. They all want a photo. They want a soundbite. And he has more important matters and he's flying away. But there's this cry of anguish that really gets his attention. And it's this young woman who is starving. And he picks her up and she faints and she's so light and frail and pale. And he brings her to this shelter. And that really gets the wheels turning. Again, he conducts more research at the at the Daily Planet, he goes to visit the shelter as Clark Kent and the doctor who runs it makes a comment about if only Superman could be there for everyone. And this is right around the time of the, the line that you quoted at the beginning of all of this, uh, where he's thinking back to his time on the farm with Pa and what it would take for someone to really make a difference. And Clark articulates this idea that he's purposely made it a point not to try to set policy that's not his role per se, but that if he takes a stand against world hunger, if he does something, that example, it's about what you do, it's about action, that example mm. might inspire others. And that sets him on this quest. And the way he goes about it is by, of course, he has to make his pitch first to, to Congress and he goes and he speaks before them. But this idea that there is this surplus all these unharvested crops or crops that are in storage that are going unused but for the ability to transport them. And so he wants to deliver them where they're needed across the world in one day. This is a one day, a few days to gather everything up and package it and whatnot. But then this is a one day 
affair, to really make a point, to set an example, to inspire others to take action. I guess this is one of my big questions for you. How, how do you feel just about the his plan, the way he goes about this, this idea that he has? Well, if we're thinking about this as a golden age Superman, yeah, this tracks. This tracks for me. This would be exactly the kind of thing that that golden age Superman would have come up with. It's very innocent. It's very, it seems very common sense. Even if as adults, we realize, you know, all the different things that would make the idea not a great idea. But okay, you do it all in one day. You get a lot of press coverage that one day. Yeah, that that makes sense in in that very narrow way. So it's the holidays, and I don't want to antagonize you. Correct me if I'm wrong. You you don't share the affinity that I do for the Zack Snyder take on the DC universe. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. However, I I, I love you anyway. You know, <laughs> I, I I keep listening. <laughs> That's the thing with this. We can agree to disagree. It's all right. I say this all the time. We all. Right. I, one of the things that I feel like I felt this even coming into this podcast three plus years ago, but I feel it even more with each passing episode. We all bring our, we bring our, our experience to whatever it is we're consuming, uh, context, where we are in our lives. There are so many forces that swirl around that determine how we take in any of these things. And it's all valid. We all love the character. Right. So yes, we can <laughs> agree to disagree. I'm, I am curious though. I wonder if this was something that you liked, or maybe this might've rubbed you the wrong way because there is a bit of a good bit of imagery in peace on earth that very clearly seemed to inspire Zack Snyder, particularly in Batman V Superman, the imagery of Superman saving people from the flood, from the fire. One of the countries that he goes to, to deliver food, the people there sadly have been so beaten down, essentially stripped of their humanity. And they're all just sort of clawing at him and crawling over themselves to get to him. And it's not dissimilar from what we see in BVS in the Dia de los Muertos uh, save where all the people are kind of crowding around him and viewing him as this deity. Uh, even when he goes to to Congress in peace on earth to make his case and he's standing before them, you definitely get the sense that Snyder had some of this imagery in mind. And I'm curious how you felt about that. I I would have to see that movie again to see that imagery and, and compare it to what's in here. I... I'm going to leave my answer there. All right. There's a YouTube. In the you know spirit what? of the a, holidays. <laughs> there's a YouTube video I'll send you if you just want to watch that. I'd, I'd like to see it. Because <laughs> someone actually went to the trouble of matching up some of those uh, some of those similarities. And even, okay. even in BVS, the scene where Clark, as Clark in his apartment, is watching the news and all these talking heads going on about, can we trust Superman? What's his deal? What he's, what's he about? And just the frustration mounting. And then- Similarly here at the end where Clark is sitting in his apartment, half dressed as Clark, half as Superman, and you see the the toll of the day. That's a great shot. Really weighing on him. I'll be honest, that definitely, I, I could see how that might have been a bit of a parallel to BVS, but more so that made me think of the George Reeves Adventures of Superman, specifically the Panic in the Sky episode, considered by virtually all of us to be the best of the series where Clark loses his memory and he's in his apartment and he's trying to figure out who he is. And he's similarly dressed half as Clark, half as Superman. It's really, it's, it's a, it's such a standout scene. And that's what I had in my head as I was watching that. And I'm I know sure Alex, Alex Ross, Ross yeah. had it in his head. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, but in any event, yeah, the BVS connection was definitely something that um, I, I was curious to get your take on, but I'll send you that YouTube 
Again, I'd like to see it. Yeah. So as the story unfolds, we follow Superman over the course of this day as he's making his deliveries of grain, it seems, to these countries across the world. And he is met with a range of reactions. Some are grateful and happily accept what he's brought. There's one place where the people have, again, suffered to the point where they're really, uh, they're, they're too afraid to even come out and accept this food. And there are rats in the street who are feasting that day on, on what he has brought. Uh, there's one of the countries where the people barely even speak. The only words that are said are from that child who asked him, are you coming back tomorrow? Right. And he has to look away because he's not right. This is, this is one day. Uh, One of the, one of the places he goes to, he's viewed as this interfering outsider and they pelt him with rocks. This was the line. And I wish I had written it down, but I'll try to paraphrase where this was one of the ones that really stood out to me where he's like the bullets shatter off of me, shatter off of me or bounce harmlessly. Each one hurts. Right. This idea that he is bringing this, gift essentially to all of these places and is met with that kind of reaction. The, the, right. The way to hurt Superman is through his heart. And I feel like that was in full display there. I'm trying to find that line for you and I cannot find it. Oh, here we go. Their rocks shatter as they hit me or bounce harmlessly aside. Everyone hurts. Yeah. That's a great panel. Yeah. I, I have to say that, and we were talking a little bit off mic about this once again <laughs> to get, uh, too political here or anything. However, it is worth saying, I'll just speak for myself here, that I think one of the reasons why this story resonates with me so much more now than it did when I was 11 and I read it when it first came out is that we've lived through a lot and we've lived through a period of time where there's been a global pandemic and there was a vaccination that was developed relatively quickly with relatively high efficacy that a substantial number of people refuse to take. And I say all of that because as you're reading this, the, I, like the notion that anyone would turn away the kind of aid that Superman is bringing, maybe as a kid, I don't, I don't know that it just fu- it fully landed with me. I, I don't know. Now, at this point in time, and especially over the past yeah. years, I read this and I say to myself, yep, it's the same, it's the mm-hmm. same reason why the Krypton portion of the origin story means so much more to me now. Because I think as a kid, it's like, why does no one believe Jor-El? Now I say to myself, yep, I totally buy that people would want to bury their heads in the sand about this. All of Krypton Twitter would have been excoriating (laughs) Jor-El for uh, his pro, uh, the disastrous imminent beliefs. (laughs) Yeah. You mean X? (laughs) Oh, X. Right. Right. X. Or uh, what? What is the uh, Kryptonian equivalent of X? I don't know the names of their letters. I'm I'm not a real Superman fan, Anthony. I don't know the names of the Kryptonian letters. One of my one of my old buddies from our comic shop he he learned the Kryptonite the Kryptonese alphabet. Oh my God! I, I never went that far. I, don't <laughs> I think. Now, did he learn Kryptonese or Kryptonian? Oh, that that much I know because Mark Wade was just uh, on some kind of about it recently on a, I don't remember it, Facebook or Twitter, and he posted the original Kryptonese by a E. Nelson Bridwell font 
And he's like, oh, it's not Kryptonian. Kryptonian is what they're trying to sell you now. But originally it was Kryptonese. And oh, Mark Wade, this is this is what I live for when Mark Wade gets on one of these issues. I, c- I couldn't tell you which one which one my buddy learned, but in a, it was impressive nevertheless. And I've never gone that far. That's I someone would have that's, to pay me for that. I feel like that's the sort of thing if I had to <laughs> for my job. Sure. But otherwise, I don't know. But hats off to, to, to my yeah. buddy and anyone else who, <laughs> who does. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, a.k.a. my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have kids and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join All Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit allyeahcomics.com and follow All Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me now. Oh yeah. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam is based in the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They're also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics to see their latest comic pickups and shop adventures. I'm a proud backer of the Paragons of Earth crowdfunder. The creative team of Percival Constantine, Thomas DJ, and Eric Johns have plucked forgotten Golden Age superheroes from the public domain, reinvented them as their own sort of Justice League, and put them up against a Lovecraftian apocalypse. Support this project by going to crowdfunder.com, that's crowdfunder without an E, slash Paragon's comic, and read a free sample. Also, Perry, who's been a guest on the show, hosts the Superhero Cinephiles podcast about superheroes in media. Be sure to listen wherever you get podcasts. But I would say, I, so again, that captures some of the range of reactions, but uh, I think they're probably the two that stand out the most, the two harshest reactions. Do you want to, do you want to speak about either or both of those? Uh, I'm sure you're talking about the one with the, uh, the general. Yes. And then the one where he's that, you know, they shoot a rocket at it. Yes. Are those the two you're talking about? Sure. Yeah. The, the general one uh, kind of confuses me because when the general you know threatens whatever he threatens and then superman leaves the food part of me kind of thinks that people are going to die there anyway like he superman did not distribute the food the general said don't do it we're going to distribute the food leave us to do it and, and superman you know at first is like no 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 i'm going to do it and they're like no we're going to shoot people if, we, if you do it and then he drops the food and leaves but uh, that, there there is a part of me that just cannot believe that uh those people are okay it's it's very true right where exactly to your point the general they have this face-off and superman calls his bluff and literally through the through the narration he literally says i'm i decide to call their bluff and so the general orders the soldiers to fire and superman uses his heat vision and melts the weapons that they have but then it becomes this it, it comes to this moment where Superman can essentially stay there and watch over them while while they eat, but there's still no guarantee what will happen after that point. And he decides to to leave and he leaves the food there. But to your point, we don't know what happens and you don't get the sense it would end well for those people. And no. I sent you, I don't know if you had a chance to look, but I sent you a Reddit thread where people were- I, I did. And I don't, I mean, I was curious. So like I said to you in that message, I, I was wondering what the, 
common sentiment is about the story today. Because uh, again, I, I've, I've always heard it talked about in relatively glowing terms, and I've always remem- remembered it you know, f- fondly, but I was like, well, what do people think about this? And you'll we'll always get a range, right? I'm not saying this speaks for everybody, but that thread in particular was fairly critical of this story. And I feel like that moment yes. in particular really jumped out. And I am curious, what is there any validity to that, to the criticism specifically of, I mean, it, it spoke to a kind of a larger critique of what Superman does, but specifically in that instance where he, he I mean, he does leave those people. Uh, one, one guy saw, uh, said that, uh, it gets so uncomfortably close to white savior, mighty whitey territory. It's unreal. And I, I did not see that. I mean, he, he, he just so happens to be showing up at a country that is not white. And actually, they're drawn so nondescriptly, you can't really tell what they are. I couldn't tell who they were or who they were supposed to be if it was some stand-in for some actual country. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know anything about that thread. I was reading it while the child was uh, throwing up on me. So I, I don't know if I missed some of the finer points, but as as critical as I am about some parts of the story, and, and I, it feels to me like some of those people must have died in that moment in that story after he flies away. Uh, they were much angrier about that story than than I was. I hear you. And I think that, like, I, I think this work has a specific mission statement. And I, I think it does fulfill it in terms of answering how Superman might approach this or or why he doesn't do more. I think were he to depose this military leader. Right. Then what? That's a different story. Not an unworthy story, but I don't right. think that's what this story was about. The whole question of to what extent he should insert himself in geopolitical affairs, because that's very clearly with this story, Superman has a very specific mandate and mission. He is delivering food over the course of this day to try to inspire others. And were he slash the story to venture into an entanglement with that particular country and its leadership, that's a series that that becomes something else. And I don't think the character as presented here was looking to delve into that. I don't think the story was looking to delve into it. And also, I mean, this is getting really practical here, but this is a day long affair that he's set out for himself and he's got a schedule to keep. Now you can ask the question and this is a larger question. I think this is part of the larger criticism of this, of why is it only a day? You know, we, we get, and we also, we get to the point at the end where Superman quotes the, the old idiom, you know, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him to fish, he's for a lifetime. Uh, but one of the criticisms that came up either in that thread or another one is, well, why, why can't it be a bit of both, right? Why can't, right. why can't he make periodic deliveries and also try to, there's also, I'm no, I'm no expert in earth science, so I really don't have much, uh, this, I don't know how well this will track, but you also wonder too, it's one thing to involve himself in world affairs um, versus delivering food. Might not something in between be irrigating a desert or something like that? You know, kind of um, 
inserting himself to an extent, but not not along the same lines, but doing something to set the people up for success beyond a one-time right. delivery. Could that not have been something that he did? That seems like a much better solution. Now, I would read a series about, you know, he he deposes that general and now he's stuck in this country having to figure out the political law. I would read that. They're not going to publish that, but I would read it. But it it would take more than what what is the story? 60 something pages, maybe 50, I don't know. Um, takes more than that to to get into all the ramifications that a real serious Superman follows through on feeding these people would uh, would uh, entail. What bothers me most is apt in in the next of uh, the most striking examples. So the grain is poisoned and, and blown up, and then he goes back home. Was that supposed to be his last stop anyway, or was he just so hurt by it that he gave up? I mean, the way he's sitting in the chair, it almost reads to me like he gave up. I don't want to believe that because I know that Superman doesn't give up. That's what makes him Superman, you know. But that being the last instance in the book, and then he's back in Metropolis, reads to me, at least it did when I was 15. I said, oh, Superman gave up. He was so upset by that. He just, he couldn't feed anyone else. That's an interesting question because my read on it was that was his last one. I hope it was his last one because <laughs> if not that, yeah, that definitely colors everything differently. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that he would be so beaten down that he would just stop. I like to think that was his last one of the day and it just ended very poorly. Well, the text says it's late in the day. So, okay. So there's, there is a case for believing that this is the last one, but it doesn't say this is my last stop. Uh, and as I'm scanning the page, doesn't, Still doesn't say anything about the last stop. I, I, uh, they poison the grain, charred and toxic. It runs through my fingers. My mission ends here, incomplete and in failure. So it really reads like he's looking at that poison grain running through his fingers and like, I'm done. They don't want me. I'm going home. I hope uh, just yeah. a line, just like it's my last stop. I'm so tired. I hope this goes well. And then it doesn't. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. That that's fine. It's his last stop. But <laughs> I, I, I know better about Superman, but there, there is a part of me that thinks that he got butthurt and went home about it. I, I choose to believe that that was his last <laughs> stop. But I, what, one of the things that I really did appreciate about the story is it made you feel his frustration, especially in that moment where yes what he's carrying is blasted out of the sky. Not just that it's blasted, but that it's poisoned. And he talks about how he knows the people on the ground. They know that the blast, neither the blast nor the poison is going to stop him individually, but that it renders his gift meaningless at this point. He can't, he can't distribute this. And as he's just kneeling there with the poison grain falling through his hands, you feel his frustration, this idea that he's just trying to do something good just trying to help, just trying to do this. And he's met with such hostility. I, we've mentioned, again, Superman 4, Quest for Peace a bunch of times. And just as a side note, and I've said this before, I do feel, I know we all like to, it's it's kind of easy to pile on Superman 4, even amongst us Superman fans. I do think that the movie was well-intentioned. I think it fell apart in the limitations of its production and and in its 
in its scope, I think the the bones of the idea were really interesting. One of the things, production aspects aside, one of the things story-wise that I've always scratched my head at is Superman addressing the United Nations and telling them he's going to round up all their nuclear weapons and everyone's just cheering for him. I'm like, ah, I don't know that people would be so, <laughs> I don't think they'd be so receptive. That's why even at the outset of Peace on Earth, when he's talking to Congress, there's a lot of hemming and hawing about whether or not mm-hmm. they're going to okay him to do this. And then, of course, you see the reactions from other world leaders along the way. So I really, really liked that because it addressed what was one of my central critiques of Superman 4 of, of, of I just don't buy that people would be that receptive to him disarming <laughs> all yeah. of them. And even here, you know, crazy as it sounds, this idea of just bringing food, just bringing food to people who need it. Uh, and be, There's also a really interesting bit too early on where where Superman is talking about how he doesn't know hunger personally, right? And he doesn't know if that's a blessing or a curse that he doesn't know what it's like to feel what other people feel. Uh, just a, a small moment, but one that, um, that jumped out. I like that moment. Are you of the school that Superman doesn't eat? No, <laughs> I don't no. like, well, I think he eats cause he likes to, I, but I, yeah. this is something that I don't really get. I suppose I can buy that he can go a really, really long time without food. I don't buy that he never has to eat. When I was rewatching uh, late Mr. Kent trying to, you know, that's the most we ever hear Tim Daly in, in one clip. Uh, he says that line of, uh, uh, I figured Ron Troop wouldn't mind if I stole his pizza. I don't need to eat, but old habits die hard. You don't eat? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I didn't that. know that people believed that he didn't eat. I don't know. I need to investigate that further. But yeah, we do get instances like that. I, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me that he right. He ages very slowly, but he ages. Sure. So again, I can buy that he, or he can hold his breath in outer space for a really long time, but not forever. Not forever. So yes, I feel like he would eventually get home. <laughs> it would just take a really long time. The whole never needing to eat. I don't, I don't, because it's like he's, everything's enhanced, but still kind of the basic needs are there. Needing to breathe, <laughs> needing to eat. So that's kind of where I land on that. Uh, I, I did like the moment. It, it does show him struggling but then but actually now that I say that I like the moment, I don't know that I like the moment because it, it it reinforces that solitary, removed, less than human Superman. Like, I don't know hunger. Like, you don't? You're a person. Like, okay, you you, you know your dad. Did you ever see him get hungry? Did you ever see your mother get hungry? Like, it, dead or not, like, they were there at some point. It, I, I really would love to talk to Paul Dini. I, I met Alex Ross uh, at some signing in Virginia a few years ago at some little art museum that just brought in Alex Ross somehow. And people from all over the country showed up to it and they were not prepared for the size of the crowd. And by the time I got to him at like 5 p.m. and you know I got there at like 9 a.m. and it took us eight hours to get through the line. I, I didn't have time to like really grill him about this, but I, I was dying to know who more about like how he sees this story. I would be curious. I I've never met him. I met Paul Dini briefly. I was telling you off mic at San Diego Comic Con 2016. He did a panel. This was right around the time his 
autobiographical Batman graphic novel for Vertigo, Dark Knight, Dark Knight came out and he did a panel on it. It's a, such a powerful work. If anyone hasn't read it, it's really fascinating about uh, a severe beating that he suffered and how the idea of Batman helped carry him through. And he did the panel and then he did a signing after and I met him. I think I missed the, if I remember correctly, like I missed the signing, but he was getting down from the, from the little area and I caught him for a minute. He was very nice. And we spoke just super briefly, but yeah, I would be curious to maybe pose some questions about what the, yeah. you know, what the thought was behind, behind some of the choices. But we ultimately get to the point where there is this feeling of defeat that Superman has, has experienced. And the realization that he expresses is that he was trying to give the wrong gift. Mm-hmm. And that's what leads us into this business about teaching a man to fish and elite for a lifetime. And ultimately we I, come full circle. No, go ahead. I just wanted to say that I, I loved the picture of him and Pa with the pumpkin like that. That's I, I needed more of that. And, and you know, earlier you pointed out that we don't see Lois. We can choose to believe that she's off somewhere. We don't see Jimmy. We, he's somewhere. We don't know who his editor is. Is it George Taylor? Is it Perry White? Uh, maybe my my feeling about the writing and this character would be different if we saw those people. And, and maybe that colors my perception of Superman. Because there he's clearly sentimental enough a guy to have a picture of him and his father holding a big pumpkin. I love that. That's beautiful. That's the the little thing that Clark, of course, Clark would have a picture of his him and his father with the big pumpkin. He's t- he's telling everybody about that big pumpkin. You know, twenty years after it was grown, he's telling people about it. Just that little detail and a scene of defeat was was so nice. As he says, "I'm giving them the wrong gift." It's you know you bring up an interesting point because it's one thing to not have a married Lois and Clark. It's another thing to have Lois totally absent. Because even if you are, to Alex Ross's point, stripping away a lot of what had been added over the years, <laughs> Lois is there from the She was jump. there. And yeah. it would have been interesting to, to see a version of this story. Now you really got the wheels turning. It would have been interesting to see a version of the story where Lois and Perry and Jimmy and the Kents are there because I, what would their reaction be to this? What issues or questions might they raise and pose to Clark and how would he respond? We, we don't know. And- Again, that's not what the aim was here, but it, it would have been interesting. I think that might have elicited more dimensions to this because it's really more this vacuum, right, that we're encountering him in, in this instance. And he has this idea and he sees it through and it doesn't go as he planned. And then we have this full circle moment, right? The story began with him remembering life on the farm with Pa in particular and how gentle and kind and patient Pa was explaining how you have to scatter the seeds. They won't all make it, but you have to give each one a chance to grow. And at the end of the story, it's now springtime. And as Clark, he's teaching school children how to plant seeds. So he's taking his own advice, right? As opposed to trying to be this global inspiration, he's trying to undertake these smaller, more practical, more tangible acts of actually instructing and leading the next generation forward. As a kid, it always seemed like a magic trick to me when a writer would take a line from earlier in the story and then make it the last line of the story. And when he says, you know, uh, 
I tell them not every seed will make it, but all of them deserve a chance to grow. As a kid, I, I was shocked that that could happen. You know, writing was such a mystery to me. It was all just such a surprise. I could see nothing coming as a kid reading. It just all seemed like the you know Olympic level feat that you would remember a line that you already wrote and then write it again as the ending. And here I, I still like it. And what I really love about that ending is that it's Clark doing it. It's it's not Superman. So that, that gives him a little more warmth to me that, you know, he's going back into his Clark identity to take his to take his own advice about acting smaller. I think that might be a little too small. If if we're to uh criticize or not criticize, critique this story as if Superman were actually doing it and not Paul Dini writing it, it, it does seem like well, okay, okay, let's let's go back to the what, what you suggested, Anthony, about irrigating a desert or something. Let's not teach kids on a field trip how to farm. Who are these children? I was a teacher. I want to let this strange man come on my field trip with me. <laughs> I know he's a reporter for the Daily. What does he know about farming? No. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. As we're saying all of this, part of me says, well, maybe, maybe we're being too hard. At the same time, though, if we're really talking about the practicalities of this. The story begs these questions and that maybe that's the risk. And this is why you don't see so many of these stories, because when it does become a matter of, well, why doesn't Superman fight world hunger? And then you show an example. Well, then it raises these questions and you really get into the practicalities of it, because if you really look and, and examine this as if it were real, there probably is some middle ground between a right. one day global grain delivery right. and teaching one class full of kids how to scatter seeds. There's probably something, it probably doesn't need to be binary. He, there's probably something in the middle that could impart instruction that will bear fruit, so to speak, in the future, while also satisfying a, an urgent need in the moment for people who are truly starving. There's something. And, and I know that that is not what we're supposed to be doing as readers with this story. We're not supposed to be appro approaching this as if Superman is actually doing it. At the same time, uh, if we're asking this, these questions as readers, maybe the story ought to be written more effectively somehow, or maybe not. Maybe ought not to be written. I I, I don't know. I, I think a lot about. Grant Morrison's line in his Super Gods book, where uh, he says something like, uh, adults wonder how Bruce Wayne can by day be the uh, CEO of a major corporation and then at night be Batman. Children know how he does it. It's not real. So here we are in this, this gorgeously painted, I don't like his look of Superman, but it's gorgeously painted, even though I don't like the look of the character. Um, and, and we're being asked to think about Superman as if he were real, handling a real problem. And then the solution is kind of not real. And I don't know. I feel like kind of a, a moron for sitting around criticizing a not real story. I mean, it's it's. I feel kind of trapped. Here I am baited into being told, take this story so seriously. And then I take it seriously and I think... Are these people dying? Well, why does he give up there? And and I come off like the moron and not uh, the person who wrote it. Welcome to the world of podcasting. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> we wrestle with these things. It's it's interesting. And I, 
I do bump into this a lot where I feel we're just overthinking it. But at the same time, I, it's what we're here for and we're working with the material and we're asking these questions and maybe sometimes we're reading too much into things. But I think in a lot of instances, we're asking and attempting to answer natural questions presented by the work. And I think that's a fun and healthy and worthwhile part of the process. So it's all right. But I think what you just said, if we're talking about, a, you know, Bottle City of Candor story and we're overthinking it, like, okay, we're, clearly we're overthinking it. It's just supposed to be fun. This is supposed to be a very special issue about a social issue, political sort of issue that, you know, we're supposed to take seriously. That That's, that's different. I, that, I don't know that we're thinking too much about it. I think we're being asked to think about it. And when we do, when we come up against these questions, then like then they turn around and say, oh, don't take that too seriously. Well, this is a huge, special thing. This is not just a regular story. This is not just a regular issue. We're being asked to take it seriously, and then it, it doesn't live up to serious scrutiny. True. By the way, I love this issue. <laughs> I... I well, here's another, I've got a lot of bad to say, but I love this issue. I love it. Here's I think here's another important piece if we're grading on a curve, right? Speaking to an educator here, where <laughs> yes, there were like I said other triangle era stories at a minimum that dealt with some real world issues, but I would say that Superman for the Quest for Peace in 87 was probably the last major and audience, if you have any other instances that spring to mind, please let me know. But that was probably the last major instance where you saw one of these huge issues tackled in a Superman story. We're just over a decade later with this Peace on Earth story. Not a tremendous amount of time when we consider the entire scope of Superman mythology. And Quest for Peace, again, great idea, great question that's raised, falls short in many respects in terms of how how it's explored. So I think here they were able to dig in deeper and in a more meaningful way and show the core, I think the core idea that there would be resistance to Superman attempting to tackle one of these problems, that comes across here. I think the questions we are bringing up about why doesn't he do this, why doesn't he do that, I think they are fair, but at least it sort of rectifies Again, what I feel to be a major limitation in the nuclear prol proliferation story. <laughs> so we take these steps and it takes time. And again, I don't know off the top of my head what I would maybe consider the next iteration of this. Because we're talking 98. This was a long time ago. I don't know off the top of my head what would be considered a spiritual successor to this. To this, I, I can't think of one either. But even just between those two stories, I think this showed some progression in terms of how something like this would be tackled. And I did, it did feel a kinship between Quest for Peace and Peace on Earth because at the end of the movie, Superman delivers that speech outside the quote unquote United Nations <laughs> <laughs> about that, that peace on Earth isn't his to give, right? It will only come when the people of Earth want it so badly that they demand it of their world leaders. And that's very akin to what Superman says to Clark Kent in that interview that he gives that runs in the Daily Planet at the end of Peace on Earth, that it has to start within the within the heart of, of one man to another, reaching out to their fellow man, that, that sort of idea. So uh, it definitely felt like they shared some DNA in that, in that respect, at least. 
I'll sign on to that. Anything else about Peace on Earth or or the Comfort and Joy episode of the animated series that you wanted to talk about? No, you you hit on the big parts about Comfort and Joy that that I I really loved. I didn't remember the intro to that episode. I, I remembered it as just a straight anthology. I, I had no idea that they worked together to uh, bring those aliens home. Or w- w- what were they doing? Were they setting up a shield on their planet? Or what was going on there? I, I couldn't there was a, follow it with a baby on me. Either a moon or another planet that was going to crash into theirs. And those aliens were able to telepathically share designs for some sort of gravitational stabilizer for lack of mm, a better okay. term that's able to <laughs> to save the planet right and then the I mean, you've told me and i've already forgotten it again so it's all right I, I i get why they wanted to have something to bring all the three of them or the three you know stories together before they broke them off into three but i didn't it did nothing for me it could have been an all clark and john episode and that would have been perfectly perfectly fine with me I love seeing Streaky uh, in uh, in John's bedroom. I love when John, there's that that shot where they're at the table and he looks down at the Santa Claus mug and we just had that still shot of the mug and that I, I chuckled. It was, it's a great little moment and Paul Dini is so good at writing those kinds of little moments, those quirky little humanizing characterization type of moments. Of course the Kents would have a tacky, Santa Claus face mug and bring it out to serve to a guest. Of course they would. That's a beautiful, loving thing to do for people that that's who they are. Uh, And I I wish we had that, that humanizing element in more in this story. I I love too when Jean is standing at the Kent's doorstep and he's very tentative and very uncomfortable. And he's like, I'm a Martian. And Jonathan's like, well, we're no stranger to aliens. Come on in. (laughs) Great. But so I I know we keep coming back to this idea about peace on earth and I don't know, would, would, to argue against ourselves here, would surrounding Superman Clark with the, even just that core supporting cast. Right. It it would add this other component and this humanizing element, but might that undermine what the story is going for in terms of him there is this element of him being an outsider, quote unquote, interfering with this issue. And I don't know, oh, I just want to put a different spin on it. I The thing is, I think for you and me and maybe for a lot of fans, we would be interested to read that story that has <laughs> that has those elements. Yeah. But I, I really feel like their aim here was to tell a different kind of story of this more solitary, outsidery Superman and per, I think it was a very conscious choice to not have, you know why I say that? The fact that, again, Perry White isn't even named when he says my editor, that you don't even, you don't even see Lois or Jimmy in the background yeah. at that Daily Planet party. This was such a conscious choice. To be honest, I feel like they only even had the Kents there in flashback because you needed that circular ending of him teaching farming, uh. right? If they, I feel like if they didn't want to end on that farm, you wouldn't have even seen the Kents. You need to see the Kents. So I, I accept your, your spin. I I mean, and, and spin is the wrong word. Spin trivia, your interpretation, I should say. I I'll take it. It gives me some kind of way to salvage my reading of this. I still love it. I want to be clear. I still love this book. 
and I, I'll keep coming back to it. But, but boy, ha, ha, knowing that I'd have to talk about it with anyone, which I've never had to do. I, I always went into it talking about it, just the three pages that I really love. I, I really did not see it before that, you know, all the things that we're, we've critiqued it for. But here's the beautiful thing with all of this. Even if maybe now it falls short in certain ways that you weren't contemplating before, those few pages and those lines that you quoted, I'm sure those still mean as much to you now yeah. as they did before. And that's oh, yeah. enough, right, with this. And so I think that's totally fine. And one thing that I, once again, realize more and more the deeper I get into this is that often it it, it is the things that we have an issue with <laughs> to some degree or another that that are top of mind that we end up spending more time talking about because there is, I have found, a therapeutic aspect to this whole process. And we read or watch something and something bothers us for whatever reason. And we come on and talk about it. I mean, in virtually every instance, I feel much better by the time I'm done with my, one of my recordings because I feel like, all right, I said my piece on it and I got, I got it off my chest and I feel better about it. So it's not that, Oh, I, I don't think the story is worthwhile or anything like that. I think it's natural. That's oftentimes kind of what we might gravitate towards that. Again, I think it's natural. I think it's okay. And I think it can, because we're never approaching it from, Oh, they don't know what they're doing or you're dumb. If you like this, that's never the approach. It's just that sometimes we bump into some of these things and we talk about them. Well, I'm going to stew. <laughs> this wasn't as therapeutic for you <laughs> no I, I still love the story I, I i loved talking about it even though i i saw things i didn't know i was going to see fair enough now you've said you've read the rest of the one shots correct yes uh, I, I, i've I'm read not. them all years ago and and i skimmed them all just the past few days i had shared with you off mic i had only ever read this one after I read this for this episode, I did read ahead and went through the Batman War on Crime. I have not read the Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman, or Justice League ones. I, I At some point, I will. Maybe that'll be a Beyond Metropolis episode at some point in the future because I, I it is kind of a weird gap. It's sort of surprising to me I've, I've not read them <laughs> before, but uh, I, I am intrigued enough at some point to delve into those as well. The other ones hold up better to me. And it, it may be that I just have such an attachment to Superman and I, I, I'm, I've i gotten myself so tangled up in how surprised I was that it sounds so strange to me. And then talking with you about all the uh, problems of, uh, how am I saying this? All the, all the, the glaring, I don't know. Are, are we calling them plot holes? Is it is it fair to call? It, is there a better oversight story elements that don't work for us? What are we calling these things that we've discussed? Whatever we're calling them, they're not there for me in Batman and Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman. And I don't know. Did did Paul Dini learn how to be a, a comic writer for Alex Ross between the time he submitted his script for the first one and then the second one? Do I just not care? Uh, I, I don't know, but I, I like the other three uh, a lot better. They work a lot better for me, especially Diana's uh, in, in Wonder Woman. She's speaking. Do you, am I spoiling anything for you? That's OK. She's speaking to Clark and like you see them talking like over coffee in civilian identities. 
And like, okay, she's talking in this way because she's talking to a reporter. Like, and and she's Wonder Woman. She she speaks more elevated than uh, than Clark should. But uh, again, I, I can't I can't let let this issue go. I have to let this issue go. I have to let this issue go so I can go to sleep tonight eventually. Yes, <laughs> and I, I will I will let you go. But real quick, have you did you read that twelve issue Justice miniseries? Yes, I did. Did you like that? I, you know, and when I when it was coming out and it kept getting delayed, I didn't like it. And then I read, I don't know what made me read it once it was all out. And I liked it for what it was. Um, and actually, when I was struggling with my appreciation of Alex Ross's Superman and this story, I opened up that one. And his Superman's a little better in there. But I think he has, Does am I remembering that he has a different penciler? Yeah, so he's or, painting over another artist's pencils, yeah. Dougie Braith White. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I think that, yeah, was, I don't the, know. that I, was the artist. That, yes, but I don't know if you're saying it right either. Probably not. I would have said what you said. But I, it's, it's I just while we're talking about Alex Ross, we've, obviously we've covered Kingdom Come. We'll do something on Mark Wade's current storyline in World's Finest at some point. But I, at one point I did have plans to do an episode on the that Justice miniseries because I had at that time relatively recently looked at a selection of Super, Super Friends episodes. And of course that was a, clearly an inspiration for that Justice yeah. miniseries. Oh, yeah. I hate to say it, man. I really, I really had a hard time getting through Justice, and I was going to do an episode, and I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I can't do it. <laughs> like, I just didn't. Oh, I that, didn't have that it makes me more curious what you thought about it. Yeah, I don't know. It just, it did, it didn't grab me. There were aspects of it. And now I've probably forgotten more than I remember. It's, it's been a little while, but there were and aspects that's my of entire it life that I thought were interesting, but it just, it, there was a, I hate to say it, there was a dullness to it that I just. I, it just kind of became a little bit of a slog. So rather than do an episode where I just <laughs> dumped on it, I said, you know what? Maybe we just we'd just fill it in with something else. So all that to say, this was really, I really enjoyed this conversation and I really enjoyed the opportunity to to go back to Peace on Earth. And regardless of any questions or qualms we might have, it, it poses some interesting questions and it was interesting to see that kind of topic explored uh, the way that it was. And yeah, the art was absolutely gorgeous. So it was definitely fun. And the comfort and joy episode was a ton of fun as well. So I thank you very much for joining us for the special. Did you have a chance though, to read that Mike before Christmas issue with Superman? Oh, that from, anthology. I did. Yes. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Now, now there is a much better story to my tastes anyway, of Superman taking a big problem I don't, I don't know. This is so new. Should we, should I say? So it's from the. Should I leave the, people to, I don't go ahead. No, it's okay. So it's from the very recently released DC comics holiday special. And it's an anthology. So you get all these little short stories. I read the Lex Luthor one as well. The, uh, it's like a Scrooge uh, takeoff, which was okay. But I, the Superman one was really interesting where, I guess we don't have to spoil every beat of it, but just the setup where there's this suicidal man who Superman tries to help, but it does bring up, and I, I thank you for tipping me off to this because this special wasn't really on my radar, but I, I did enjoy that because Superman talks about this idea that he can save someone, but he can't make them happy, right? Someone can jump off a building and he can save them, but he can't necessarily prevent them from doing it again, or he can't necessarily address 
the issues that made them take that step in the first place. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I liked it. And, and maybe to your point that, but also that was, I mean, it, it's, I don't know, I don't know how to put this. It's a larger, in some ways it's as large an issue, but in other ways, and I think the way the story was presented through the lens of a specific individual, maybe right. that, maybe that created more of a path for a more satisfying answer. Right. And in fact, that's why the Batman, uh, issue that came after peace on earth worked better for him because he wasn't by the end of it, trying to save earth. He was trying to, you know, build up that one area, that one neighborhood of Gotham. Like, okay, I can wrap my head around that. You, Paul Dini and, and Alex Ross could tell the story around that. But yeah, that having that one guy made a big difference in addressing that huge problem. And, and here in, uh, in super Bay Peace on earth, he doesn't really have any people. I think that is a very, a very important distinction between the stories. Yeah. That, that current special that we're talking about, what's it called again? The actual one shot? Uh, might before Christmas, M I T E bat might. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, no, again, I thank you for tipping me off to that. I read that on the, on the app and, uh, yeah, it was, especially that Superman story was enjoyable. Well, listen, Josh, I know you had been on our Patreon roundtable relatively recently, but this was your first appearance on Digging for Kryptonite proper. So I thank you very much for, for being Thanks part for of Thanks for having this. me. No, absolutely. Audience, I thank you as always. And especially, this is our last episode of 2023. And I really just want to thank all guests, audience members, and patrons. Josh, you're all three. <laughs> but I want to thank everyone in those groups for supporting this. This was, like I said, the end of our third full year we crossed the 100 100th episode mark during this year we did one of our big triangle era events we just finished up a big krypton event we did our massive red skies run of episodes that i'm still recovering from it was fun and we also hit some big stories early on in the year like all-star superman and whatever happened to the man of tomorrow and despite everything we've already covered i mean i remain as excited if not more excited as I was at the start of this journey. And we've got some great territory we'll be getting in ne into next year. We're off next week. We'll be back in two weeks with our first episode of 2024. And we're going to start off the year with a really, really fun run of standalone episodes. I do love my events and we're going to get to that in a little while, but we'll start with some really fun sort of big ticket. Anyone can listen to these, these, these standalone episodes. And I'm excited to present all of those. Patrons have gotten a little bit of a hint of what's to come. I'll be sharing for everyone else uh, soon enough. And as we get deeper into the year, I will be delving into the biggest remaining gap in my Superman fandom. And I've given hints about this along the way. I don't think this will be too much of a surprise, but stay tuned. It should be a really fun, interesting year. I'm excited to unpack all of this and to continue along this Superman fan journey. So thank you, Josh. Thank you, audience. Once again, happy holidays to everyone, and make sure you come back in two weeks for our first episode of 2024. Until then, as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This podcast is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Many of you have already used this code, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Hop in the Supermobile and join us for the spinoff podcast Beyond Metropolis, available exclusively for members of my Patreon community. It's a monthly tour across the DC universe, with the signature Digging for Kryptonite style applied to your other DC favorites. 
Additional Patreon rewards include advanced listens, sponsorships, and more. We offer regular monthly memberships, discounted annual plans, free trials, and a la carte purchases. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato or click the link in the show notes for more. Thank you all. Be sure to check out our sister podcast series, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, an episode-by-episode breakdown of the classic George Reeves television show, available wherever you get podcasts. Please join us on social media, become a patron, and subscribe, rate, and review today. Links are in the show notes. Thank you all.